I today am reading the genealogy of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, that is found in Matthew chapter one. Please bear with me, have grace on me. These are some hard names. All right, here we go. (laughs) Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all. Thank you. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. That was amazing. I don't know how you did it, but it was impressive. Oh, I've never been so happy to have a scripture reading as I am in this moment. Well, today is the beginning of Advent. And the word Advent means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And Christmas is the advent of good news coming to us in the person of Jesus. And we just heard his genealogy. And it kind of sounds like a Hebrew phone book. Just a lot of names that are hard to pronounce. The scholar Raymond Brown writes, quote, To the modern readers, there are few things in the Bible less meaningful than the frequent lists of descendants or ancestors. And doesn't it kind of seem like a boring way to start the Advent season? It's like, great, a list of names I can't pronounce, unless you're Alita, who did brilliantly. (laughs) It's like, oh, not that inspiring. And if you feel that way, I understand. But to the Jewish mind, this was the natural starting point when telling the story of Jesus. The purpose of the genealogy was to establish the pedigree of the person. 
And so we might tell people who we are through things like TikTok or Instagram, or you know, we establish our pedigree through our resumes or bank account or our amount of followers on social media, right? Our, our online dating profile establishes our pedigree to the world. But we don't tell people who we are. We don't establish our pedigree by talking about our great, great, great grandparents. Apparently I'm related to Charles Dickens. I don't know if that's true. I have no evidence, but I tell people a lot. Um, <laughs> that's the exception to the rule. Like how many of us know who our great, 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 great grandparents are? I don't. But ancient people told others their identity through their genealogy. And this was especially true when it came to a priest or a king. So the Bible scholar William Barclay notes that, quote, a priest was bound to produce an unbroken record of his pedigree, stretching back to Aaron, who was the originator of the priesthood. Not only that, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council in the first century in Jerusalem, they had as one of their main jobs to keep genealogical records safe. And so genealogies mattered in the first century. And through this genealogy, Matthew is trying to tell us that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the Savior, the true King. More than that, he is Emmanuel, God with us. He will be called Jesus because he will save us from the curse of our sin and make us new. That is who Jesus is. And here Matthew highlights his family lineage. And there are some notable names. Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish faith. In Genesis 12, God makes this promise to Abram. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will curse those who curse you, but all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the promise made to Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. Or think about Jacob. Jacob is the father of 12 sons who become the originators of the 12 tribes of Israel. Or King David. David wrote most of the Psalms in the Bible. He was king during Israel's golden age. The prophet Samuel promised David that one of his descendants would always be on the throne and rule forever. And in the first century, when the Jewish people longed for a Messiah to rescue them out from under the grip of the Roman Empire, they longed for a political and military leader like David, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. These were names that should be included in the lineage of the Messiah. These names establish Jesus' pedigree. But these names aren't the most remarkable thing about this genealogy. What I wanna do is point out three things that Matthew does with this genealogy that would have surprised first century hearers and are good news for us. Three things that would have been subversive or surprising to first century hearers and are good news for us. So first, Matthew is writing primarily for an audience of first century Jewish people. And their ethnic identity was very important to them for religious reasons. Uh, they were God's chosen people, rescued by God out from under slavery in Egypt, in this unique covenantal relationship with God, called to stand out from the rest of the nations. But Israel was also called to be a blessing to all the nations. 
And this call to be a blessing to the nations originally promised to Abram will come to fulfillment in Jesus. And Matthew hints at this by including non-Jewish people in Jesus' genealogy. And so Tamar and Rahab were not Jewish. Instead, they were Canaanites. And if you read the Old Testament, you will find that the Canaanites were constantly at war with Israel. They were enemies. But Matthew doesn't edit their names out. Instead, he keeps them in. Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites were, for various reasons, banned from the assembly of God's people. It was written of Moabites, quote, No Moabites shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of their descendants shall enter the, the assembly of the Lord. They were on the outside looking in. Matthew goes out of his way to include them in Jesus' genealogy. It's very interesting, surprising. Uh, second, Matthew highlights the scandalous nature of Jesus' genealogy. The most fascinating part of this lineage, to me at least, is the way King David is mentioned. Look at what Matthew does, it's wild. It's almost like Matthew breaks the flow of his genealogy to add this one remarkable line. This is verse six. He talks about David, everyone's ears perk up, and then he says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, whose mother Bathsheba is her name, had been Uriah's wife. Most people would have gone out of their way to delete this history. Remember, this is supposed to establish the person's pedigree. Matthew goes out of his way. He like breaks the flow of the genealogy to include this detail. He reminds the hearers of the most scandalous event in the life of King David. And many of us were new to faith or were new to the Bible, so let me quickly remind you of the backstory. It won't be boring. It's gonna sound like a show on HBO, okay? There was this time in David's life where as a younger man, he was a fugitive running from the hatred and jealousy of King Saul. And during this time, there were a group of brave individuals who went out to protect David. They were called his mighty men. They put their lives on the line for David's safety. And one of these mighty men was Uriah. And years later, David becomes king and Uriah fights in his army. And while Uriah is out on the battlefield, risking his life, fighting to protect the borders of Israel, David is at home relaxing. And he sees Uriah's wife bathing on a rooftop. And he wants her, so he takes her. And he sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. It's this horrible story that gets worse. David devises an elaborate scheme to cover it up, and he pulls Uriah off the battlefield in hopes that he will go home and sleep with his wife and cover up the pregnancy. But Uriah refuses to go home and enjoy his wife while his fellow soldiers are out there on the battlefield. He sleeps outside. Uriah's kind of a legend. And so David's cover-up doesn't work, so he arranges to have Uriah killed on the battlefield. David sends Uriah back to the battle with a sealed letter in his pocket to the commander of his forces. And the letter instructs the commander to put Uriah in the place of fiercest fighting and then have the troops withdraw from him so that he's exposed and killed. David writes the letter, Uriah carries it to the battle, David's commands are followed, and Uriah is killed, all to cover up 
David's horrific adultery. Matthew goes out of his way to highlight this part of David's story. Usually you edit that out. You don't leave that in. But Matthew highlights scandals in the lineage of Jesus. Here's the third thing. There are five women listed in this genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And as one theologian writes, this will not strike the modern readers as unusual, but in ancient patriarchal societies, a woman was virtually never named in such lists, let alone five of them. Women were often excluded. Matthew includes them. Very interesting, very surprising for his first century hearers. And if you're new to the Bible or Christianity, it's important to note that we believe this wasn't just the gospel author making stylistic choices. Oh, you know what? I think I'll include uh, these people in the genealogy. We believe the Holy Spirit inspired, superintended the recording of this genealogy, which means the names that are in it are the names that God wants in it. God is making a radical statement with this genealogy, not just about Jesus, but about who Jesus came for. Let me quote to you pastor and theologian Sam Albury. He says this, Matthew's genealogy includes the outcast, scandalous, and foreigner. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. And so what I want to do is go back through the three things and take it a step further. First, Jesus came for the nations. He brings blessing to all nations. Jesus is for all peoples. Jesus' family is meant to be diverse. The end goal is described in Revelation 7 when the writer pens these words. He says, after this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who is Jesus. This is where God's story is going. This is no monolithic, bland bringing together of cultural clones where everyone looks the same. And in this genealogy, we get the first hints of the nations being welcomed in. Every ethnicity, every language, every culture, a multitude, no one can count, all welcomed into God's family in Jesus. The family Jesus came from anticipates the family Jesus came for. Second, Jesus came for the sinners and the unrighteous. Listen to me. No scandal, no sin, no secret source of shame, no addiction, no lie, no betrayal, no struggle with lust or greed. None of it is unforgivable. None of it means you can't be a part of God's family. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon had like 700 wives or something, right? Like everyone in this lineage is a sinner. Jesus' family is a mess. His family is dysfunctional. His family shares much of the brokenness we find in our own families and in our own hearts. You 
see Jesus came from a broken lineage to heal and restore broken lives. Third, Jesus welcomed the marginalized. Women were marginalized. The first century Jewish historian Josephus said that the testimony of a woman should not be admitted in the court. One Jewish rabbi said it would be better to burn the words of the Torah than to give them to a woman. Not Jesus. Never Jesus. Jesus elevated the status of women to the position of disciples and learners and teachers. The Samaritan woman at the well, she was a foreigner and scandalous and a woman. Yet she is the first person to whom Jesus reveals his messianic identity in his ministry. And she becomes a missionary, like a preacher tells her town about Jesus. Many come to believe. At the center of Advent is a young girl named Mary, a poverty-stricken teenage girl who's pregnant, who would have been looked down upon, who would have been gossiped about, who would have been treated with suspicion, who would have been marginalized by the religious power brokers of the day. Yet she is at the epicenter of God's saving activity that she will participate with the divine in giving birth to the savior of the world. And all Advent season, we're going to be studying her reaction to this. And so in the most important lineage in the history of humanity, women are included, not excluded. The family he came from anticipates the family he came for. I remember I was shopping once and um, some of you have read this story or heard it, but I was shopping with my daughter, Mila, when she was four, and we were in the change room, and I was trying on shirts, and when I try on new shirts, I do hand gestures like I'm preaching, because if I don't want the buttons to pull, you know? <laughs> and it sounds a little vain, but you don't want to see that either, right? So that's why I just wear sweaters now. I've really embraced the sweater. Um, and so I was doing, I was like, like I'm preaching in this chain, and my daughter's four, and she looks at me, and she says, oh, you're preaching. And, and I said, yeah. And I don't know why I said this, but I said, yeah, are you going to preach too? And here's what she said, not skipping a beat. She said, no, I'm not a boy. I can't preach. I'm not a boy. And I was like, oh, who told her that? It wasn't Alita. I'm like, oh, if Mary can proclaim the good news about the birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, so can you, honey. If Mary can write a song of worship that becomes holy scripture and has authority over all who read it, then you can serve Jesus with your gifts too. Women are included in what God is doing, not excluded. Women were placed in the margins, but God brings them into the center of his story at Christmas and at Easter. Whether it's the incarnation or the first great act of new creation, the resurrection, women are right there at the center proclaiming that news, not at the margins. And that is very good news. No amen. I can't. I don't know what else to do. Um, oh, you know what? This next part is, is good. So um, here's, there's one more thing that's really fascinating about this genealogy. Uh, at the end of it, Matthew makes a big deal about the numbers. You notice this. He says, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. 
Now, what's fascinating is that Matthew left out generations to get this number. The genealogy is based on one found in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, and if you compare the two, you see that Matthew has intentionally edited out three generations to get this number. And this was common practice. But he edited out, gener- he edited out generations intentionally to arrive at this number and make a theological point, 14, 14, 14. Let me say three things about this. First, Scholar William Barclay suggests that it's a mnemonic device making it easy for people to memorize. So this was common practice, 14, 14, 14, it's just easier. Um, Second, Jewish rabbis had a practice of assigning numerical values to letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And when you add together the consonants in King David's name, you get the number 14. David also appears as the 14th name on this genealogy. And so clearly Matthew wants to highlight the connection between Jesus and King David for his Jewish readers. Jesus is the true king who will reign forever as promised to David. Then third, Matthew highlights 14, 14, 14. In other words, Matthew records six sets of seven. And the advent of Jesus is the beginning of the seventh seven. Now, seven and multiples of seven in the Bible are very significant numbers. On the seventh day of creation, God rested from creating. The seventh day was the Sabbath. In the seventh year, the land rested to be replenished. Finally, in the 49th year, the seventh seven, it was the year of Jubilee. And every 49 years, according to the Old Testament law, debts were canceled, indentured servants were set free. It was meant to be a year of celebration and rest and new beginnings. And here Matthew has the birth of Jesus as the beginning of the seventh seven. And this is no accident. The year of Jubilee involved the forgiveness of debts, the release of slaves, and rest for the people of God and renewal for the land. It represented a new beginning, a new genesis. And all All of these various themes come to fulfillment in Christ, that Jesus pays the debt of our sins. Jesus sets us free from our slavery to sin. Jesus brings rest for our souls. Jesus gives us new beginnings. In the last two weeks, we've heard stories of men who suffered from massive drug addiction that landed them, in one case, in prison, nearly destroyed their lives. In the evening service last week, and then this morning through Jason Roberts' story, but both men found a new beginning through Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, freedom from slavery, rest for their souls. You see, it's still happening today. Everything the year of Jubilees foreshadows comes to fulfillment in Jesus, that the whole story is leading to Jesus. Advent is not about our pedigree, our resume, or our religious performance. Advent is not about how good we are. My son's leaving right when I'm at the end, you know. (laughs) It's fine. This is the part I really wanted him to hear, oh. (laughs) Advent is not about how good we are, our pedigree, our resume, our religious performance. Advent's not about how good we are. 
In fact, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, in his chapter on pride, writes, if we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure we're being acted on not by God, but by the devil. Advent is not about how good we are. Advent is about how good Jesus is to include us in his family. The addict, the adulterer, the outcast, the pretender, the overachiever, the perfectionist, the wildly successful, the one who never feels good enough, the lonely, the lost, the hopeful neurotic. I mean, we're all invited. It's not about how good we are. It's about how loved we are by God in Jesus. The broken can belong in Jesus' family through repentance and faith. The family he comes from is the family he came for, and he's come for us. And it's so beautiful. And so let me end with this story. Uh, There's a guy named Bob Goff who's an author and speaker, an amazing storyteller, okay, one of the best. And years ago, he was surfing at a beach by the Sunset Cliffs in San Diego. And while enjoying the surf, he got caught up in a massive wave and found himself pushed up against the cliff. And the power of the wave was so strong that it snapped the surfboard. And so he's struggling to keep his head above water, but he's certain he won't last long and he's gonna drown. Thankfully, there was a guy walking along the top of the cliff who saw him. And this stranger, at risk to his own life, made his way down a 70-foot cliff and jumped into the water beside him and rescued him, saved his life. And Bob goes back to that cliff every Advent season with his entire family to thank God for this man who didn't stay where it was safe and comfortable, but instead put his own life at risk to rescue Bob. And I understand why he would go there yearly and bring his family. Such a meaningful act of thanksgiving. But why does he go there every Advent or most Christmas Eves? It's because Advent is about a God who didn't stay where it was safe and comfortable. God didn't shout advice at us from a distance. Instead, he came down from the heights of heaven and entered into our history. He's not just God above us. He is God with us and beside us and inside us. And unlike Bob's story, Jesus didn't just risk his life to rescue us. He gave his life to rescue us. He went under the waves so that we could be restored. Unlike Bob's story, we weren't just strangers to Jesus. We were rebels against Jesus. Sinners separated from God, enslaved to sin. Yet he came down from heaven to pay the debt of our sin, free us from our slavery to self, and give rest for our souls and make us new. The family he came from is the family he came for. And he has come for us. And this is a truth coming back to, worth coming back to, year after year after year after year with thanksgiving and joy in our hearts that we would be included, that we would be broadened, that we would be forgiven and set free. So how should we respond?
If you keep reading the Gospel of Matthew, you will know that there are religious leaders who reject Jesus. And then there are crowds who kind of observe Jesus from a distance. And then there are disciples or followers who go all in for Jesus. And in response today, I wanna invite us to go all in for Jesus because he went all in for us. And we're reminded of that fact every Advent season. And we're also reminded of that fact every time we celebrate communion together as a community. Something we do every week as a rhythm to remind ourselves that this child we celebrate at Christmas time will grow up and he will exchange a cradle for a cross where he will die to pay the debt of our sin. And he will rise to bring us freedom from our slavery to sin. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave it and he said, this is my body. It's given for you. And then he took wine and he poured it and he said, this is the blood I'm pouring out. This represents my new covenant, my new relationship with you. Remember me every time you eat this bread and drink this wine. And so that's how we're gonna respond. The team will bring communion elements here and we can receive communion when you're ready. And then there's gonna be people up at the front willing to pray for you. And I think there's a couple things we could pray for just with people at the front or if you wanna to turn to people beside you, that's great. If we've never encountered the love of Jesus we hear about in the Christmas story. Maybe today is the day for you. And you'd want someone to pray for you like that guy prayed for Jason in the video we saw. That's one way you could respond. Another way is just, I think some of us might feel like we're not good enough to belong because of what we've done or because of our past. And we need someone to just join with us in prayer that God would bring us over that hurdle. And then third, there might be people in your life who you want them so badly to encounter the love of Jesus. And you're inviting them to church, Advent, you're thinking about Christmas Eve. And you might want someone to pray with you about those names that come to mind. So you can turn to people around you, people you came with, but there's also gonna be people up here who will pray for you as we take communion together. So let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this good news that the family you came from anticipates the family you came for. Through repentance of sin and trust in you, Jesus, we're so welcomed in. Whatever our history, whatever our past, and in you we encounter this love that changes us, heals us, restores us, makes us new. And I pray this Advent season, that truth would just hit us afresh. Some, some of us, we, we've heard this story um, so many times and it feels like maybe we're starting to get immune to it. But I pray against that. I pray instead there just be fresh revelation in our hearts about how good you are. 
And I pray that in the awesome, mighty name of Jesus.